And good evening, my fellow lovers of love. How are you all doing this evening on this journey through <laughs> the stream of consciousness? I lost it. <laughs> I, could, I was cracking myself up. I couldn't work through the laugh. <laughs> on this late version of Late Night Love, we are exactly 25 hours late, but, you know, better than a week, I suppose. I was, you know, the. I promised my doctors I'd be a good patient. I wasn't quite feeling well yesterday, and rather than push myself and do the show and get it done, we took a took a day off and did it a day late. Better a day late than to, you know. Push yourself too far and really get in trouble. Yeah, you know, I said I'm gonna be a good patient. I'm gonna do all I can to, to you know to do these things right and get healthy and all that good stuff and that means taking care of yourself and we talk a lot about taking care of ourselves around here you know we talk a lot about that mentally but it you know it becomes physically too it's not necessarily working out or you know i could always improve my diet good lord knows that's the truth um but i actually have <laughs> i have improved my diet it's still not you know world's greatest diet it still has a lot to be desired, but that's just saying where it came from. <laughs> it started at an awful place. Well, I keep waiting for you to work vegetables into your diet. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Come on, corn on the cob, that's good. Yeah, well, I can eat corn, but that's about, there's not a whole lot of vegetables that I can eat on a regular basis. Mostly, but mainly it's a texture. It's as much as a texture as a taste issue. It's a texture sensitivity. So it's been a strange week, which kind of dovetails off of last week's show. You know, I've labeled this week's show, What is the Meaning of Life? And because it's trying to, I was trying to kind of come up with something that kind of encompasses the whole everything that we're talking about in this particular show. Not everything always fits neatly under that label. But as I start to kind of work my way back into same normal behavior and we start try to reanalyze the world and start trying to we put these shows together and last week we talked about was it that the no no it was last week we talked about you know do you ever talk is is it worth it is all what we're doing is all these things we're doing is worth it well it's worth it if your life has meaning And so, you know, we're kind of playing off of last week's show. You know, what is the meaning of life? We all get to make this decision for ourselves. There is no universal meaning of life. It doesn't exist as a universal concept. There is no... Subjective. Yeah, we, I get to decide. You know, not everybody wants to be the CEO of a major huge corporation. Some people want to be a starving artist. The... They're not happy unless they're a starving artist. If they get too successful, they kind of feel like they've lost their soul and they sold out. They essentially want to be a starving artist. Now, there's balance there. If you you know you've got to feed yourself, you want to have a, a decent life and all that. But you know, struggle makes great art. Almost all the great art came from people who had struggles in their life. Mental struggles, struggles, family struggles, economic struggles, whatever it is, cultural struggles. I mean, there's a reason that in the United States, the black community leads in culture, leads in art and culture. They came through a great struggle. Uh, great struggle leads to great art, leads to great artists. And so it's actually a natural consequence of that struggle. And, but the same can be said for all of us. Everybody struggles. Every single one of us. Nobody gets out of this life unscathed, unscarred, uninjured, untraumatized. It doesn't happen. And the question is, how do we have the motivation to move through it? 
how do I have the motivation to continually moving through all the goofy bureaucratic holes I find? You know, how does a friend of mine decide every day to get out of pain? So to, despite being in pain, get up and go off and be busy. And you know, his decision was, well, I'm going to be in pain if I'm laying down or doing things, so I might as well be doing things. But it's easier if he finds things that he's that are meaningful for him. So he sticks to things that are meaningful for him. Now, whether that's a conscious decision or a subconscious decision, you know, it's not always easy to say. You know, some people will gravitate towards things that they're motivated by. And other people will just take what's available because you know, you've got to feed yourself or whatever it is. And, you know, sometimes that's enough. Meaning of life is, well, having enough food today so I can try and find food for tomorrow. For most of humanity's existence, that's what we did. Really, it's so what, 1895, 1885, something like that. I forget what it was. The average human lived on the equivalent of less than a dollar a day in today's money. So when we look back at history and they tell us the history of all these people in the castles and the big, they're not telling us real history. That's the history of a 1%, not even. The average person's history is a daily struggle. And so we still struggle today. It's just different. It's just the context is different. And our change is rapid. And in a sense, it's we're having trouble adjusting to the new reality that, for the most part, we don't have to do that daily struggle. Not the same way. There's a different intensity level to it when you're facing starvation versus when you're facing uncomfortableness. There's a different uh, intensity to it when you have access to clean water and when you don't. When you have access to basic sanitation and you don't. And in some sense, we're not appreciative of how far we've come, of how far all the efforts have become, you know, we look today and we hear all these people who talk about whether it's the environment or not. You know, we've done nothing. Well, that's not true. The world used to be a much dirtier place, at least in terms of the developed world. It was much dirtier. Not even all that long ago. The 70s, the 80s. We really didn't start cleaning up our other world until the 80s. And we, made a, we have made a huge difference since then. I don't think people actually understand because it's hard to see. If you're 30, you didn't see a world where you got to, you walked to school in smog. In Sacramento, you don't hear, in Sacramento, I grew up in Sacramento, California. I used to walk to school and you could literally see the air. And you're talking a town that is now Five, six times bigger. And the air is visibly cleaner. It's visibly better. Does it mean it's great? No, of course not. Does it mean we can't try to find ways to live cleaner? No, of course not. We always should be looking for ways to live better. To live cleaner. To do less harm to those around us. Whether it's society or it's individually. But we shouldn't forget how far we've come. Our basic human rights, our understanding of human psychology, our taking care of those basic mental health needs, we've actually come a long way. We talk about how we haven't gone far enough, how we don't do this, we don't do that, and it's all true. Except when you think about it, in the 70s, we used to put people in mental health hospitals for being gay. And now we're here approaching the end of Pride Month. 
we've come a long way. in our understanding of our humanity. And so as you search for the meaning of life, as we search for why we do this, why we're here, let's remember a little bit that we stand on the shoulders of people who had a much more difficult existence. It doesn't mean ours isn't hard. It doesn't mean our struggles aren't real. It doesn't mean that we... Should, um, well, what's the phrase I'm looking for? It doesn't mean that we don't take our troubles seriously. It just means they've evolved. And we can take some stock in that if we've come that far, then we can go farther. If we've gone from putting gay people in in the, you know, mental health facilities to having Pride Month in 50 years. What does the next 50 hold? You know, so we all think about all the, you know, the evils and the bad things in the world because like the sore thumb, it's easy to see. But, you know, at the same time, let's not forget to take stock that we have nine working fingers as well. When we used to only have five, now we have nine. Conceptually. You know, of course, you know, it's not going to work. It's not a perfect metaphor, but, it, <laughs> but conceptually, it's, you know, we still have a lot of fingers and uh, are, we have more working fingers now than we used to. You know, we used to have more sore fingers and now we have less. Things are getting better. Yeah, it's not a straight line. Life isn't like that. So I'm actually going to throw a curveball for you because I told you we we're going to start with one topic, but we're actually going to change because I think my conversation... There's a... On our list here, there's an article about how someone doesn't care if it could be worse when you're in pain and losing hope. And when someone tells you that, I can actually understand it. But one of the things that gets me through those days when I'm in pain or those days when I'm not hope, when I have kind of lost a little bit of hope, is the fact that I understand it could be worse that can always be worse, that I can always make it worse. That no matter how much pain I'm in, there's always something that could happen that can make it worse. And it's not that it makes what I'm going through any less. It just gives me a mental perspective. It's not that, you know, what it's not that I'm making myself or my experience less. Instead, I'm making sure I put it into context. That, yeah, my legs, you know, we'll use an example. My knees or legs would be hurting for a week, and it sucks. And i kind of getting tired, and you get tired of it. And, and you know, that's one of those days when I start asking, hey, can you go get the saw for me? You know, talk about chopping off my own legs. We, we, we go through this. There's those days. Now, I'm not serious when we talk about that. But... You know, at the same time, you know, it's kind of a morbid humor kind of kind of way to get through it. Because I know that would actually be worse. <laughs> so in a sense, it's going, you know, let's just get it over with and we'll make it worse for a short period of time so I don't have to deal with this. But in context, it helps me mentally put things in context that, yeah, it can be worse. And then I can help me get through it. Now, I'm not going to throw any stones at anybody because we all get through our difficult days the best we can. And it's nobody else's place to judge unless you're being mean to people. You know, no, it's no one else's way to judge how you get through the day. I'm just 
you know, if you're having difficult times, sometimes gaining a bit of perspective that, you know, it can always be worse. You know, whatever thing, whatever is happening, you can up, you could always have a flood could always come by and, you know, it's going to be worse. Why? Because that happens in life. Because it's not a, life isn't picking on you. As much as it seems like it, and as much as I would like personally like to feel like life sometimes picks on me, it's not really true. Life doesn't care enough about me to pick on me. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the fates of the world, there's what, 8 billion people on the planet or something, 7.2 billion, whatever it is. Yeah, the, the fates don't have enough time to pick on you. It's, <laughs> they got other things to do. Why is God picking on me? Yeah, God has time to pick on you. You know, <laughs> God's a little busy. Uh, life is just life. Life is like that. You know, and sometimes... You know, sometimes you throw craps, and sometimes you, you throw double sixes, and sometimes you go on a bad streak. But also sometimes, one of the things I've actually kind of come to accept is that despite all the bad things that happened to me, they all could have been much worse. And so in a grand scheme of things, I'm actually pretty lucky. I know. <laughs> Could have very easily been worse. Very easily. And so in a sense, you could say I'm lucky. Like, you know, it's just a strange thing. All right. So what do we got? So we'll go with it. There's a, there was an article. We got pulled all these from the Mighty this week because, quite frankly, I was short on time. Um, there was a discussion... And they're linked in the show about how guys need to discuss our emotions. And I actually find this a bit irritating because I actually find that guys do discuss their emotions. Oh, really? Yes, I always have. This notion that men don't, I, I've never understood it. And the people I've hung around, the men I've hung around, were not special. There's nothing special or unique about them. It's what they do is they discuss them in a different way. So instead of asking men to you know, be better at expressing themselves, maybe it's up for the rest of us to be better at listening. Because what men don't do is repeat themselves. They will tell you how they're feeling. But what they won't do is tell you ten times. And sometimes they're not exactly articulate. Well, that's a challenge. Well, yes. But they're not going to be articulate unless you learn to listen. Because if you haven't listened, they're not going to trust you to talk to you the second, third, fourth time. They have opened themselves up. But we don't... In general, men don't have emotional discussions the same way women do. And that is the crux of it. That's the issue. And so it's not that we don't have the discussions. It's we talk about our emotions differently. It's not that we don't talk about our emotions. It's we do it differently. And we need to learn to listen better. Well, what have I been missing all this time? Well, nothing. I... We are not a good example. <laughs> I've spent 15 years in therapy. I know how to have very to, to express myself in various ways to be understood if I need to. If I haven't expressed myself, it's an internal issue. It's not an external one. And so, you know... It, yeah, and so I get, I, those are a little frustrating, but if I'm patient, you come to me. Yeah, well, it's because part of the problem is, is I'm, 
you have to understand that men, until they can understand it themselves, they don't want to sit there and have a rambling, bumbling conversation. It's not that they care about crying or any of that. It's the it's men like to be efficient. And so if they can't clearly express what they're actually feeling, if they're going to kind of stumble through it, they don't want to be judged for a half-completed thought. Oh, for heaven's sake. We get rejected a lot. There's a consequence of get, having to, of, of historically being the ones who get rejected. That rejection pays a price. Now, it's a consequence. It's the way the world works. There's no way around it. Well, women get rejected, too. Not the same way. There's not the expectation. I mean, it's, and it hasn't been generational. Again, we're talking, we've only changed. The modern world is a generation old. And so <laughs> I actually suspect that these conversations are going to lessen as generations go by. Just as we get farther and farther from the from the from history, where it's men were expected, the ones to have to reach out and reach out and face rejection on like almost constant basis. That rejection has a price. It pays a price on your psych on your psyche, and it's not just about women. You you get rejected from jobs. You get rejected from spouses, you know? Yeah, I, I like you, just not enough to want to spend any time with you. And you hear that a hundred times. Then you have to go out, and you're the one who's expected to go out and produce and provide a, a living for your family. And so you've got to go out and do jobs. And you go and you look for jobs, and you get rejected a lot. And then you got to... Look for improvements. Climb the, the ladder. You get rejected a lot. <laughs> and we don't even consider. We don't even consider the psychological impact that plays on male culture. Now, none of these things excuse individual behavior. We want to make sure we're clear about that, right? Someone's a, a lout, someone's a lout. But we're talking culturally. You know, when we talk about men are unwilling to express themselves, there's reasons for that. If you express yourself wrongly, you get rejected. You know, and what's worse of all, you get rejected by you know, people who care about you, if that's your fear, you're going to keep quiet. You're only going to tell people what they want to hear. No, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. There's reasons we'd walk into hospitals half dead. It's not just me. I'm not the only one that does it. Y'all do it all the time. Yeah. It's afraid. It's a, fundamentally, it's a fear of rejection. Even in, and that fear of rejection can manifest itself in strange and mysterious ways, and very few of them are healthy. <laughs> but y'all are y'all are mysterious, all right. But the, the the solution to that is is for society to become better listeners, and as society becomes better listeners, men will become better talkers. But you can't expect people who have a fear of rejection to be the ones to make that first step. It's unkind. You can't lecture them into making that first step. You have to lecture other everybody else to start listening better. And then, after you start learning to listen better, then you can start expecting a response. But you're expecting rejected, essentially traumatized people to make a step. It's, we, we all know, any of us who have anything in this field of self-help or psychology understands it. It's just, it's not, 
You're setting people up for failure. Okay. So which one do you want to cover next? We got five minutes before you want to take a break. So. Uh, s signs you might be experiencing a major depressive episode. No, that's ten signs. We don't got the, ten uh, signs. We minutes. don't have time. Now we uh, after the second half. Okay. Um, that's the fear of grief thing, or okay. the scared of recovering from a mental illness. Or well, I'm scared. Why I'm scared of recovering from a mental illness? Yeah, there's an article. That's an interesting one because I can actually kind of relate. I understand where, she, where they're coming from. I think it's was a she. Yes. Um, where she was coming from. I have a tendency to read these things without checking who the art, who the author is first. So I don't try to not to make prejudgments. So I just read it based upon itself. Um, so I forget. Sometimes if they're because if they're well done, you don't know if it's a man or a woman writing. it. You don't really relate. It's a very human thing. But anyway, so there is a problem because as much as anxiety disorder has been troubles in my life, it also gives me a gift. You know, it's that analytical brain of mine. It, it's the double-edged sword. The brain works very fast. It can analyze a lot of data in a short amount of time. Well, when I'm not in a social situation, when I'm reading, analyzing politics or psychology or all the various things that my fingers are in, you know, I can put things together that other people can't. I can see connections that other people don't. Can't. Yeah, you do. You do. Yes. And, but that's a gift that that anxiety brain gives me. I can't have one without the other. Mm. Because that quick brain that analyzes a hundred things at once is the same skill that can analyze the wide variety of different subjects and put them together. It's the same skill. And now maybe it's a skill you can learn, but it's a skill I naturally have. And so there's a fear of losing that. And there's also a fear of losing your uniqueness. You know, that wonderful equation that is our personalities, that is our individual humanity. You change that. You change that. You know, you, you change that equation. You start messing with that equation. You mess with that equation. And if there's part of you that you like, there's some fear that if you change part of this other equation... It's going to come out far differently than the unattended consequences. Well, for me, it's fear of the unknown. What am I going to be? You know, what am I going to turn into? Am I going to like the new me? Yeah, well, there was a conversation we had what was it, last night, if you don't mind, about your uh, when you first stopped drinking. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, you, you said, says, well, there, that's it. There's no more fun. Yep, that's it. <laughs> I'm ready to not have, I'm never going to have fun again. I can't drink anymore. I'm never going to have fun. I give up. I give up. I don't care. It, it, I'm, I'm done. It was, it was so, I was in so much pain. Oh my God. I was willing to do anything. Give up fun. That's what I gave up. That's what you thought you were giving up. That's what I thought I was giving up. Yes, you thought, but but it ended up not being that. Yeah? No, today I it'll be uh, 32 years without a drink on July 5th, and jeez, July 4th was a good day, there, eh? <laughs> oh, it was just another day. It was just another day of drinking. That was nothing special. I didn't do fireworks. I was inside drinking and crying. 
But your fear was you'd never have fun again, except you'd spend your days drinking and crying. It wasn't sound like much fun. <laughs> well, that's what I realize now when I look back on it. What fun was I giving up? What exactly was, was such a great deal? But at the time, you you know, that's kind of, in a sense, it's kind of your identity. It's the identity you built for yourself. And so, you, you know, whether it's healthy for you or not, the fear of what am I going to become? What am I going to become? Yeah. You're going to become the old maid or, or, or you know. The... I didn't care at that point. No. I didn't care. I, I, it was there. I wondered what the hell am I going to become? But, you know, they laid these steps out for me and they said, this is what's going to happen. So I'm like, okay, yeah. all right, I'll go with that. We'll go on a little bit of faith here. Y'all seem to know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, but but you can understand the fear. Uh, of, yes. Yeah, because, you know, you start changing that personal equation. You start changing those personality equations. And there's a fear that you're not going to like what's coming out the end. But if you don't like what's going on now, you know, there's a bit of rolling the dice. Roll the dice. Because, you know, here's the thing. If you don't like it, you can always change it. You changed it once, you can change it again. If you were strong enough to make that move the first time from something you didn't like and it ended up being something else you didn't like, well, you know what? You've proven you're strong enough to change. And that's the lesson of the first half of the show. We will be back in a few minutes. And we are back. Thank you for joining us on this late evening. And just so we can get some business covered here as we were talking uh, commercials, you can always find us at latenightlove.us. You can send the lovingator over there and email it love at latenightlove.us. You can find me at jazzrack on Twitter or on our Facebook trade, Facebook slash latenightlove. And MeWe Minds, and uh, I think various other podcast platforms. All right, now that all that is done. Alright. So, we were just talking about kind of get the meaning of various meanings of life. Right. Kind of. In various ways, how we get through these troubles of life and how that meaning, whatever you've found, that meaning you find in life, is actually what helps you get through those trials and tribulations. If you have no meaning, it's very difficult to get through trials and tribulations. If you're not doing it for a reason other than, if you're just going through the motions, it's hard to succeed. It just is. Okay, so. Uh, let's do the 10 signs experience the major depressive episode. We'll go start with the list. Let's go that Okay. My anxiety manifests as anger. In some cases, rage, this person. Well... Anxiety can manifest as anger because essentially it's kicking you into fight or flight mode. And so if you go into fight mode instead of flight, that's anger. And that's going to manifest as anger. So, you know, it's, it's your, your two. It's fight or flight. And so if your instinct is to fight, then anger. If your instinct is to... to the flight, then you're going to become meek and withdrawn. So it's, you know, those those are the two things to look out to notice. If you're becoming overreactive, I suppose, then it's a sign that you, you, know, you maybe there's something else going on, or you're hungry. You're hungry. <laughs> there's always that. <laughs> But, you know, you know yourself. If you're self-aware, you, you know which one's going on. 
Number two, I overeat and binge. When I'm upset, I purposely overeat or binge. Well, that's the old comfort food thing, isn't it? Comfort food. That's where that phrase came from. That's the old comfort food thing, is you're searching for some sense of normalcy, some sense of security. And, you know, your comfort food makes you feel comfortable. Makes you feel... Yeah, there's, there's really no better way to say it. It's, you know, you're, trying, you're looking for some comfort. And the kind of the more depressed you are, the more comfort you're going to look for. So it's not an un... It's perfectly reasonable. You sleep more. Yep. That's true. But it's, it's why we sleep more is actually the, the what I find interesting on this one is because we don't actually understand why we sleep more. It's because your brain is working. Your brain is the most active organ. It takes the most energy to run. So when your brain is overactive, you're literally exhausting yourself. Your brain can literally exhaust you. And so it's, that's kind of, it's a strange thing. We don't think of it that way. Why am I so tired? It's because your brain won't leave you alone. We kind of know it, but we don't think of it as the brain has literally sucked the energy out of it from a calories perspective. It's almost like exercise, but you don't get the muscles, don't get the exercise, but you do lose the calories. It's, it's just interesting. I mean, it doesn't help any, that information doesn't help a damn anybody, doesn't get through the deal. It's just interesting. You know? Again, you, you know, the question is when you're dealing with these, is how to, what do you do about yeah. temper is shorter? That goes back with the number one. I don't understand how one and four are not the same, but okay. Number five, loud noises freak me out. Yes. That panic. That's, that's the fight or flight. That's the fight or flight, yeah, because you're in the fight or flight mode. And so in fight or flight mode, you're going to hit panic. You want know? you know, to crawl into bed after you take the skies full. Yep. That's because you're exhausted and, and the world is pounding on you. You just want some peace. The crying. A cry. Oh, my God, yes. It's a drop of a hat. Yeah, that's the, oddly enough, that's the side effect of being on of the adrenaline rushes. That's the, that's the, uh, the downside. Oh, really? You get the pickup, right? Well, you know, the downstroke slope of the adrenaline, you know, this, it's the, you know, the, the coming off of it. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh, it's uh -huh. a side effect of coming off the, the adrenaline rush. Uh, uh. So when you get the adrenaline rush, you get that adrenaline peak to get you through whatever experiences is happening. Well, you take that away, your body's going to have a reaction to that as well. You know, it's that massive chemical change. It's, you know, Good. taking that massive chemical change away is going to have just as big of an impact as as them as injection of that chemical yeah. so and of course yeah yeah a reaction equal and opposite reaction so as as high as that adrenaline takes you up it's gonna take just as far low and so it's a perfectly which is why it's so important to kind of try to maintain which is why i work so hard at maintaining because the peaks and the valleys are just as high, you know, the valleys are just as deep as the peaks are high. And so I try to keep, just for my sanity. Can you imagine living? It's an awful way to live.
speaking and bowing the whole time. It's just, it's terrible. Anxiety's through the roof. You know, it's just, I'm kind of, this person talk about depressive episodes. I think this person is dealing with anxiety. They haven't talked about depression in any of this. They're talking about anxiety. Yes. She's talking about anxiety. She's not talking about depression. Well, um, I thought she was going to talk about this when she started off talking about the anxiety, that that's a step in her spiral. Because there's a spiral down to it. Well, yeah, but... A, a deterioration. Well, yeah, but in that particular case, you treat the anxiety, not the depression. Treating the depression is too late in the process. That's why I never discuss having depression because it's not, it's the wrong thing. It's too far down the chain to, to work on. If I'm feeling depressed, it's A, it's either a short term issue, like when the doctor called me back and said, We want you to come back to the hospital. I spent a couple hours depressed. Literally, I was depressed for yes, a couple I hours. Yes, I know. <laughs> but once I kind of got there and kind of settled in, I was fine. But that's a short-term situational depression thing. That's not the same thing as a as depression. Right, right, right. And that wasn't even caused by anxiety. That was just I. That was just a pure situational depression. I was just depressed having to go back into the freaking hospital. You know, it was a perfectly reasonable reaction if you ask me. <laughs> You know, but also for a long time, they tried to treat my anxiety as depression. They treated the depression caused by the anxiety rather than, and it wasn't until I started treating the anxiety and ignoring the depression that I actually made progress. Because I wasn't, I was treating, treating this depression is treating a symptom. And yes, okay, sometimes you need to treat symptoms, but you have to treat the problem or, or otherwise you're just, you're never going to stop having symptoms. If you actually want to lessen the symptoms, you have to treat the root cause. And almost every list in this, she's talking about her anxiety. That's a huge red flag for me. Now, I'm not a mental health professional. I've just spent 15 years dealing with mental health issues and learning about anxiety and trying to come to terms with how it works and how it functions. And so I... You know, I'm not trying to, you know, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express. I don't play a doctor on TV. I, I, you know, this is just my own practical experience. But I'd be looking into treating the anxiety rather than treating the depression. Because it seems to me like she's treating depression instead of her anxiety. So anyway, we'll come through this because this was the next one. She doesn't do her favorite activities and hobbies. Now that's actually a sign of, of depression. Yes. Right. You just don't, you kind of lack the motivation to do anything. And that that's, but that on all this stuff, that's also straightforward. Anxiety is through the roof. There's another one and stop wearing real clothes. So only two of those are actually... Anything that's not leggings, she says. So, and so she's talking about having depressive episodes. I'm guessing she needs to treat her anxiety and her depressive episodes will lessen. Focus on treating anxiety and her depressive episodes will lessen. So I'm not going to... I don't want to say she's not having depressive episodes. Clearly she is. It's the cause. She's talking about her anxiety in, what, 7 out of 10. Anxiety doesn't come from depression. That's not how it works. You don't get anxious because you're depressed. You get depressed because you're anxious all the time. And it's an awful way to live. And it's depressing. Life is very hard and it's depressing. So anyway, I, I, I'm hope she 
thinks about treating her anxiety instead of her depression. And that's kind of the only thing I have to say on that. I did, did, in a sense, it kind of rings, has a ring of your own history. You're dealing with depression when you should be dealing with anxiety. Mm-hmm. But that's the difference when you're dealing with medical doctors versus dealing with mental health doctors, psychologists, counselors. Counselors don't actually care about the diagnosis. They care about making it better. Doctors like putting a label on it. Anyway. So, what we got next? Let's go to some of these questions. We'll come back to that last article if we want to get to it. Okay. Because we've got, what, 20 minutes? No, we have 15 minutes. All right. So, how do I get first one? <laughs> how do I get my 27-year-old adult daughter to understand it's not her place to tell my homeschooled 14-year-old daughter how babies are made? My youngest asked her sister, I don't want my kid to know a baby's made until she's 18. Now, there's, there's two parts to this question. My, there's two instinctive answers I have to this question. The instinctive answers, yeah, okay, you get to decide what your children do and don't learn. But then there's also this part of this thing called reality. And if your 14-year-old daughter is asking the questions, she's going to find the find answer. Out. She's going to go find her own answers. Do you want to be a part of this or not? <laughs> yeah, whether because whether it's her sister her, or the library, the library, the internet, her friends, school, or, you know, even, yeah, okay, so you've taken the school thing off the table, but she still has friends, she's still got the internet, she's still, if she's old enough to ask, she's old enough to know. They're teenagers, they're going to find out. And then you don't have to tell them freaking all kinds of stuff, just give them the basic, basically answer their question. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to embellish. Well, look, you're uncomfortable with it, and I get it, but life's tough. Parenting is a rough job. Parenting is a rough job, and you don't always get to do it on your schedule. You know, the sad thing is the children children write their own schedules. Yep. And the best you can do is manage them. Manage the inputs when you can. And so, in a sense, yeah, it, you okay, your daughter shouldn't be going out of her way to tell her 14-year-old sister. You know, she couldn't go out of her way to tell her 14-year-old sister about the birds and the bees, but if her 14-year-old sister asks... She's her sister. She has every, every right to tell her. You think so? Yeah. Especially if you're not. Sadly, you don't always get to make all the calls. When somebody asks a question, do you have to make a decision? No. And when it's your sister, brothers and sisters talk to each other. They tell each other things. They teach each other. It's what they do. To expect differently is to deny the way the world has worked for all of history. Yeah. I actually don't interject myself in my children's uh, relationships with each other. They have to build their own. They have that right. So you've got you're smashing into a conflict of essential rights right here. You've got it where everybody's rights are conflicting. There's about six different rights conflicting, all meeting the place. And the question is, you're the adult parent. You have to take charge and you have to accept reality. The reality is it's time to have that discussion with your honor. Because she's asking. And she's not five. 14. The body changes are happening. It's time. <laughs> She's asking. Yeah. And that was my always thing. If they're old enough to ask, they're old enough to have a question, they're old enough to have an answer. 
Yes, they are. Yeah, that's the realest thing. And, and here again, you don't have to embellish and start going into all kinds of detail. Just give the basic information. Yeah. Well, you give them as much information as they... And then if they ask another question, then you answer you, that you, question. You give them as much information as they need. It's yeah. not going to be comfortable. Could they stop asking questions? My solution to that was give them more information than they wanted. But because I always was never afraid of having my kids have information. So <laughs> I'd rather have them too much than not enough. Yeah, but this is for someone who's having difficulty. Yes, I know. But, you know, someone who's having difficulties should also hear another perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I get it. I, I understand the instinct. I don't want to, I don't want to, especially in the modern world, you understand the instinct of wanting to protect your kids from everything that's going on. But it is the modern world. Unless you're Amish and living on the side of a mountain or something, there's just some, there's just reality. And I know you're not because you wrote into, uh, onto a website asking a question. So, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. My neighbor, this is just, this is kind of a cultural this, one. This is funny. This, this, is, this is a funny one. My neighbor has cars stopping in front of his house all, all hours of night. He comes out, talks to them, and they drive away. What could they be doing? Mind your own business. Unless they're actually leaving trash or disturbing, actually causing a disturbance. Mind your own business. Now, the easy question is they're selling drugs, but that's not necessarily true. They could be selling all kinds of things, not necessarily drugs. But as long as they're not causing any problems, what do you care? Now, I get it if they're actually causing a disruption, but if they're just saying, if you're just looking at your window, wow, there's always cars over there, so what? Being nosy. <laughs> that just puzzles you, doesn't it? I know. I get it. If they're making a lot of noise, if they're coming and screeching and you know leaving a mess and that kind of thing, okay. But if all else is relative, so what? He didn't even complain about loud music. He didn't so complain he, about there's nothing. There's no complaining. No, he's just saying this is strange. Well, the, the, stop looking. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably just out there selling weed. Yeah. Well, he might be selling drugs, or you know, he could. Be, there's there's all there's legitimate things you can be. You could be selling as well. You could be selling tacos or tostitas or something. Late night. There's a. They actually have late night uh, rogue kitchens, rogue restaurants, that kind of thing. They exist all over the place. So depending upon where, especially if you're like down in LA, there's there's uh, restaurants that work out of people's houses. They're drive up restaurants, essentially, out of people's houses. But they do it late at night because you can't do it during the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it looks like a drug deal, but they're really like burritos and shit. <laughs> you know, or it's ethnic food. It's not necessarily burritos, but you know, Filipinos will do it also. Ooh, lumpia. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Lumpia. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they do it all the time. It's it, so really, it, it really depends. And you know what? Mind your own goddamn business. <laughs> it's none of your business. If they're not causing an actual disruption, it's none of your business. People are allowed to have people over. All right. <laughs> that is funny, though. All right, this is one. How should I react as a single father to my teen daughter trying to show more skin than she should at her age? Swing and covering and her new wardrobes have hit the stores. I don't want her to feelings, but I am a father in the end. Well, one, there's, she's teen. And so the question is, you have to react in a way that doesn't cause her to rebel. Because then you're going to end up having more problems than you're having now. 
So you're going to have to be prepared for a compromise. She's going to want to show more skin than you're going to be happy with. She just is. Because she's a teenager and you're a single father and you're the only thing she has to rebel against. And... And so the, she's looking for her freedom. She's looking for ways to express herself. Now, you may not be surprised that she will not go for the... I'm going to take a guess. She won't go for the tube tops. No, my guess is she's not going to go as extreme as he's afraid of. <laughs> because she's not going to want the fight. So she's going to go as far as she thinks she can push you while still pushing you. Yeah, she is. A little bit, a little bit. She's going to push you a little bit. And so what you got to understand is when she's pushing you a little bit is be very careful how you push back. I'm not saying you don't have to push back because the, your lines are your lines. I can't tell anybody else where they're right. It's how you do it is, is the key. If you throw a fit, you're going to get pushed back. If you calmly explain why, she may not agree, but she'll at least have the explanation why. And teenagers really want to understand why. Yeah, they do. And she's really going to want to understand why. So you're really going to have to have a good explanation of why. Better than it just doesn't feel right. If that's your explanation, you're in for a long teenage years. If it's just fear, then that's fine. She can understand that. Tell her. She can understand it. That's a human emotion. She'll, she, you'll actually can relate with her. If it's, look, I, I have a fatherly fear. You know, I remember what it was like as a teenage boy. I, mean, I have a fatherly fear. You know, that kind of conversation. Be real. Connect with her. And then find a compromise. Neither one of you is going to be happy, except you'll both be happy. Because you'll have actually made a connection, which is the most important thing. You have a good, solid connection with your daughter. It doesn't matter what she wears. She's not going to do the wrong thing. And that's what's actually important. Okay. My mother-in-law wants me. What is oh, I love this. My mother-in-law. What did you say? My mother-in-law wants me to throw two separate <coughs> birthday parties for my one-year-old daughter. So that one party will be just her side of the family. What should I do? Okay, can I answer this? Because this is kind of really pretty easy. Yeah. Do what you dang well want to do. That's what you do. And it, you have to tell the mother-in-law, I'm sorry. No. We're having one party. If you want to give a party, you can do that. Yeah, well, because we come from, a, I have a large family, and so it's not actually unusual for people to have more than one birthday party. You have one birthday party for one chunk of family, you have another birthday party for another chunk of family, and and some of my, my grandkids, they have three or four birthday parties, because, you know, they got the Filipino side of the family that you go have a birthday party with, they, come, they have the birthday party with their friends and family, then they go have a birthday party with grandma, with, with my <laughs> those kids, they break out <laughs> in terms of birthday parties. But, you know, because you need to rent a freaking casino hall or something to have a birthday party for all of those people. There's no, no one has a house big enough for everybody. So, <laughs> so in a sense, there's some, there's some truth to having multiple birthday parties, especially in a large family. But you know what I didn't say of them? Their parents don't throw the parties. The grandparents do. The grandparents do. That's right. That's right. So if the grandparents... If you want a separate party, then you, you have to throw it. Yeah, you have to do the work. You can't expect other people to do work for your benefit. Say, so, hey, I'd like to have a birthday party so our family can have an easier time getting together. Okay, great. 
You know, you want to take them to Chuck E. Cheese and it's fine or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, from a practical perspective, especially if you've got large families, it's not practical all the time to have one big, huge ass party. So there's that's so the sentiment doesn't necessarily have to be bad. But that is <laughs> you must have two parties for me. No, 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 no. <laughs> You want to have a party and have great. We'll show up. Basically, I want a party and I want you to throw it. I want a party. Want you to throw it and invite all of the people I, I want. Yeah. No, 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 no. The hell is that? Okay. Should I allow my nine-year-old daughter to shave her head to support my sixteen-year-old, a sixty-year-old family member going through chemo? What should I say to defend her against family members and think I'm wrong if I let her? Well, one, you let her if she wants to, if she wants to do it. Then yeah, fine. Yeah. It's hair. It grows back. For the love of God. <laughs> and showing support for a, I don't care if it's a family member or a friend or some stranger on the internet. There's nothing wrong with it. She's caring about, at nine years old, she's caring about something bigger than herself. You should be proud. And that's exactly what you tell anybody who has anything to say about it. She's nine years old. She cares more than about herself. I'm damn well proud of her. Tell them to stick it up their... Stuff it. Yeah. Take my boot and stick it up your rear end sideways. What the hell is wrong with you? It's hair. It grows back. She's not dealing with cancer. I'm glad she cares more than about herself. Anybody who has a problem with it has a problem. Needs to spend some time in the mirror. Now, I can understand if she's got like long, beautiful hair. I can understand having enough, you know, emotional feeling because you know, especially nine-year-old daughters and grandparents and whatnot. Oh, she, her hair is so beautiful. I can understand the emotion. Yeah, 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 but that's different than actually saying well, you shouldn't have done it. Or you know, why? I, I, or why did you let her? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna miss her. I'm gonna miss her beautiful hair. That's a perfectly reasonable sentiment. But she cares about a 16 year old family member, and she's expressing her support. Anybody who has a problem with that needs their head examined. We generally do. Okay, we got one more question and just enough time for this one because it kind of ends, it kind of wraps all this up. What should we do to be good parents? Well, what did we start with? We started with listening. And what did we end with? We ended with a daughter who thought more than of herself at nine years old. And a parent who's having to defend themselves against people who somehow might have a problem with that. We've actually, in the conversation we've had today, we've told you how to be a good parent. You listen. You care. And you defend them when they're right. You have wants, you have needs, you have desires, and then you have reality. And you as a parent have to be the adult, and you have to make the proper decisions that are best for everybody in the long run. For you, your child, society. You know, raising a child is the hardest thing you're ever going to do. And you don't know the outcome until 20 years after you're done. You, know, you don't get immediate feedback. It's not how it works. And so it's difficult to know 
when to have the conversation about sex. It's difficult to know when to give them freedom, when to listen as a genuine issue, and when it's teenage angst, and you're listening just to help them work through it. And it's not real in the sense that it's just kind of an emotional chaos. You know, the emotional chaos is real, but the underlying issues aren't. And, and there's no direct answer. There's no easy answer. There's a reason there's no book. The reason there's no parenting for dummies book. You know, it's not that easy. We're all unique. Our children are unique. And the world we grew up in is not the world they're going to grow up in. So in a sense, we're teaching them lessons that work for our world, and it's not necessarily going to work for theirs. And how do we manage that? The best we can. You know, when milk spills, you clean it up and you move on. And you try and help them not spill it next time. Say, okay, what happened? You don't ask them what happened to punish them. You ask them what happened so they know what happened so they don't spill it next time. You know, if it's you're not quite strong enough to pour a, gal a glass of milk with a gallon of, of milk, sorry, you can't do it yet. Sometimes that's the answer. But you're not going to know if you don't listen. So you want to be a good parent? You need two things. Listening skills and patience. And with that, we're going to call it a night. From me and Bubby, good night. And please remember to love everybody. Good night. <laughs>